We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Michael Mason, who is a board-certified geriatrician with over 20 years of clinical, teaching, and leadership experience with Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Mason completed his medical education at the USC School of Medicine, residency training in family medicine at Kaiser Permanente Woodland Hills, and a fellowship in geriatrics at the UCLA Kaiser Permanente Geriatric Program. After completing his fellowship, he worked at Kaiser Permanente in Southern California in both family medicine as well as geriatric medicine. He practiced and taught outpatient family medicine, inpatient medicine, as well as full-spectrum geriatric medicine, including work in the nursing home, home-based care, and geriatric assessment clinic. During this time, he was also a clinical instructor with the US UCLA School of Medicine and was involved in teaching medical students, residents, and geriatric fellows. In 2014, he moved to Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, where he helped start a geriatrics program and advanced palliative and supportive care services. Because of his efforts, Dr. Mason was promoted to the regional co-chair for geriatrics and continuing care for the Permanente Medical Group. Dr. Mason has a passion for the development and evolution of geriatric and supportive care, specifically system development within Kaiser Permanente to support care in geriatrics and supportive care, as well as areas involving geriatric syndromes. Mike, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So Mike, can you tell us a bit more about your background and what your day-to-day work looks like? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So um, my background does come primarily started with family medicine, which is the uh, what I practiced for over 17 years in the Southern California. Um, and when I moved to Northern California, um, I decided to, to really move because of the need into to primarily a geriatric and a palliative and supportive care aspect at that point. And um, now kind of my day-to-day varies. Um, we've started, uh, in addition to our skilled nursing home work, um, which is typical for most geriatric programs, we do uh, a memory clinic and we have home-based geriatric care as well. And so those, those are the three things I do in my clinical practice. In addition, I'm, I'm able to do some teaching with residents uh, as well as working in leadership and, and kind of guiding and, and pulling people in the right direction, hopefully. That's great. You're a busy guy, Mike. So families have had to stay away from their elderly family members for safety reasons during this pandemic. How are you seeing this affect the physical and mental health of the elderly population? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, early on, because of the fears of uh, spread of the disease that um, most congregate living facilities like nursing facilities, assisted living, memory cares, restricted visitation, um, and that probably came out in February or March, um, early fe- or late February, early March, where we, we restricted visitation. And because of that, um, patients who were used to seeing a family member sometimes every day or multiple times a day now have the inability to see them. I'm sure you've heard stories about family members who've, who've said, I've, I've had to look at my mom through a window. Um, and that's the only way I've seen her over the past several months. 
And it really has affected both the patient's mental health because they're not able to see people that, that have been such a part of their life for so long. And it affects the families as well. And they're very upset um, with not being able to, to, to be with and see their families, um, especially um, if they become sick. Um, and so it's been a real challenge for everybody across the care spectrum. And one of the challenges, especially in some of the congregate living facilities, is, is sometimes family members will be able to, to calm people with, with memory problems or behavior problems. And now we're not able to have them into the buildings, which, which has an effect, a, a negative effect as well. So it really is, it's, it's a really hard time for everybody on all sides, and it puts extra stress on the staff. Um, the staff are now having to, to kind of manage it and be almost like the family for many of the patients now. Yeah, that's an added challenge to an already difficult job. And, and I've seen some of those pictures online of people visiting through a window, and it's, it's really quite heartbreaking to see that. And I can tell you, I, I just finished a week on the inpatient medicine service. And those families who aren't able to go into the hospital to visit and, and be with their elderly family members when they're sick, it's really a tough situation and, and puts an added burden on everybody to be you know, on the phone describing what's going on and, and how somebody's you know, either improving or not improving and just adds stress all the way around. Um, Mike, can you tell us the difference between a nursing home and a skilled nursing facility? We're going to talk about, I'm going to have some questions for you, and I want to make sure everybody knows what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think a really helpful thing um, for a geriatrician, we're used to people who need care in different settings. And I always like to say there's a balance between uh, where somebody lives with their independence and the amount of, of support that they have. And for most of us, um, we have a lot of independence and very little support, and that's where we live home, at home alone. Um, as somebody becomes older and has needs more help, um, the amount of assistance goes up, but the independence will go down. And so from home alone, we can go home with help. Um, you can move into a retirement community um, that kind of has a little less independence because you're kind of in a bigger community, but you maybe have people looking at you a little bit more. Um, and then you can move into what's called an assisted living. And assisted livings are Typically, they have multiple parts, but one part would be independent living where you have your own room or your, your own place, but meals might be communal, um, entertainment activities may be communal. Um, and then as people continue to, to need more support, we have in those assisted livings that typically have something called a memory care unit. And a memory care is where patients who have extra needs because of dementia and other memory problems can stay. And they generally have a lot more communal activities um, in observing, monitoring, and interacting than do people in other settings. And then we can move people into places like a board and care, and that's a house in the community. And what may happen with the, the house in the community is people may take that house and divide it into different rooms, and they'll hire 24-hour caregivers who manage patients. Lastly, moving into is something called a nursing facility. And a nursing facility is like the nursing homes people typically think of. And these nursing facilities um, have two parts to them. One could be considered what we call skilled. And that's somebody who's just left the hospital but has extra needs, uh, maybe for IV fluids or medication management or therapy after a hip fracture. And then there's what we call custodial nursing home. And a custodial nursing home is where people may live because they have nowhere else to go and they're very frail. Um, they may have a lot of illnesses that, that go with it, comorbidities that go with it. Um, and um, it's, it's really what, in the state of California, we call it Medi-Cal, but really what Medicaid in most states pay for for these patients. And so the nursing home 
Um, again, is where people live as they get older. They're generally very frail. They have limited functional abilities, limited financial abilities. And these are some of our most vulnerable populations. Great, Mike. That's a great description of the entire spectrum from living at home independently right on through custodial care. So I appreciate that. Can you tell us what are the purposes of a skilled nursing facility or a nursing facility in general? And what are some of the misconceptions about them? Yeah, you know, this is this is definitely something that's come up recently with with COVID. And there's a lot of information on the news that makes most geriatricians cringe because um, it's really a skewed view of what happens there. Again, a, a nursing facility, one of those skilled nursing facilities takes care of patients. They're staffed with nurses. Um, they're staffed with aides. They have dietary, so they have their own kitchen. Um, they have pharmacy. They have lab. They have x-ray that can come in. It's kind of, they're kind of like mini hospitals where people live. Um, and so there's a lot of people in care there. One of my friends who's a, a geriatrician in Southern California commented today that, that um, you know, the nursing home industry has more regulation than the nuclear industry. There's a lot of mandates from the, both the federal and state governments about what happens in those buildings. Um, and there's a lot of care that happens in those buildings. Many people move there um, to live there. When they move to live in a nursing facility, they live there because they really are out of options. And, and so we have a very vulnerable population with a lot of, of illnesses who, who are there. It's really the most vulnerable of our population in America. The most vulnerable generally live in those facilities. They range. Sometimes there's one person in a room. Sometimes there's two or three people who share a room. And uh, the activities can be shared. Um, they have built-in physical therapy and occupational therapy. So there's a lot of services that are provided um, in those buildings to help take care of patients. Great. And what's being done in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities to keep elderly people as safe as possible during this pandemic? It's a great question. Right off the bat, uh, what happened with uh, the Center for Medicare, and for, for Medicare, as well as for the California Department of Public Health and most public health departments in each state mandated that they had to shut their doors to any visitors. Um, and so the idea was that the coronavirus wasn't going to come in from a patient usually. The coronavirus is going to come in from somebody bringing it into the building unsuspectingly. Um, and again, they wanted to limit the transmission to really our most vulnerable group, vulnerable group of patients that we have. Um, and this kind of goes even into... Um, so, so the, the main thing was really limiting visitation. The other thing that they do um, to, to the other part of your question is everybody is screened when they walk in. When I walk in the building as a physician, I don't get a pass. I get my temperature taken. Um, I get asked questions about my respiratory status. I get asked if I've seen any sick people, if I've been exposed to COVID in the past two weeks, if I've had a test for COVID. Um, it's a very rigorous for everybody, whether it's me, the nurse, the aide, the dietary people. They don't allow deliveries in most buildings these days. Uh, there's a lot of safeguards taken to really limit um, the spread of disease into these facilities and into these buildings. Great. And Mike, can you tell us about your experience with actual COVID infections in the elderly and among those staying in, in nursing facilities? Yeah, unfortunately, that's something that I've had to do recently, um, that we've had uh, one of our nursing facilities in the county where I work has had uh, had an outbreak of, of coronavirus where the COVID came into the building unsuspectingly by an asymptomatic nurse um, who then spread it to other nurses who spread it to many patients. And, and so early on, what we decided was if we had one nurse positive, that we really had to test uh, every nurse, every aide, every dietary worker, every EVS worker, um, you know, maintenance, housekeeping people. 
um, and every patient in the building. And so we did that day one and found that, you know, there was a lot of unknown coronavirus in these buildings. Um, many people are asymptomatic. And, and early on, we separated the people who had COVID from those who didn't. Um, the employees were put off of work. Um, extra staff was brought in. Everybody had adequate personal protective equipment. Science, science, science. science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And, um, And we manage the patients in the building. And then we kept testing week after week to see would we continue to get more COVID cases. And, and we continue to see some spread despite the best uh, efforts at isolating and cohorting the, uh, the patients, putting them in together so that they could minimize the spread. You know, and, and the, one of the challenges, which goes back to the previous question, is some of the misconceptions. And because families aren't allowed in the buildings to try to protect the patients, as well as now trying to protect the families um, from COVID, um, the media took the, the article and said, um, wow, we must be doing a terrible job because COVID is in this building. And the real truth is that all the, the nurses that kept going to work every day, um, taking care of those patients were, were heroes. I mean, they're going into a situation where they know that every patient they're seeing sometimes has COVID, but they continue to go and care and provide medicine and food. Um, and, and our outcome, our experience has been that these patients have generally done pretty well in our building with that care, we had a very low likelihood uh, for all these people for anybody to be hospitalized. Um, some people do pass away and they're very frail and elderly, um, but again, it's providing that care for all those members. In nursing facilities in general, one of the really interesting things is that you look at statistics in each county that a significant amount of, of, of people passing away happens in these buildings. And this shouldn't be a shock to anybody um, because that's where we've we have all of our sickest, most vulnerable patients in, in every community. Um, and so if the coronavirus gets into a building, which it just inevitably does, it's very contagious, it, 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 can, it can do a lot of damage. Right. So, Mike, I'd like to ask you about goals of care conversations and what, you know, just explain for the audience what those conversations are all about. And maybe let's start with the, the pre-pandemic era and just generally you know, explain for us how, how you approach those conversations and what the content is all about. Yeah, it's a really great point. Um, I'm gonna take a step back in time to when I was in medical school. And uh, when I was in medical school, we were taught if a person has a disease, here is the treatment. And, and we weren't taught to ask the patient what they want. And I think we've evolved a lot in medicine to now including the patients in their diseases and their treatments. And it seems like maybe to many people listening to this today on a podcast that, um, well, of course we would do that, but it really is kind of a newer idea of 
of how we include patients in the in in the decisions. And you know, especially for people as they get older and they have uh, many medical problems and they've been through a lot in their life, they may have a different goal than than what you or I may have. And what we failed to do in the past was really to ask people what their goal was. And um, I've kind of evolved this over many years of doing it. And um, pre-pandemic, we were working on a couple of pilots with um, with uh, organizations to try to do studies on, do we really do a good job of asking people their goals to, to defining those goals and to following them? And that's kind of one of the things that we've really worked on. And those goals sometimes um, are non-medical. And it's okay for a patient to have a non-medical goal. Um, some people call them a bucket list sometimes, I think is a, another funny way to think about it. But the goal for everybody isn't to be on a machine to live as long as they can. Um, some people have a goal that's different than that. And it's up to us to ask the question and then respect the patient and, and their wishes. Great. And so if someone is in a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home and they contract COVID, how, how do goals of, chair, goals of care change or the discussions around that change? You know, early on, what we started to realize is that um, with the data that came out of China and then out of Italy, it was that uh, some of the patients who do have the the poorest outcomes um, and have the highest likelihood of of passing, regardless of what we do medically, um, are the patients who who are older and more frail. And so we decided that if COVID came into any of our buildings, one of the first things that the team should do is is to assess what's happening with the patient, um, but also to know what are their goals. And because COVID kind of changes things for people. I've had patients where I've asked them, you know, what would they want if the the COVID progressed? And they said, well, they knew very very definitively that what they would not want is to be on a life support. And that if they became sicker, what some of the patients told me, please don't put me on a machine, just keep me comfortable. And um, I think that's something that, you know, medicine has the ability to do today is to say, no matter what problem or disease or illness you have, um, doing nothing is never the answer. There's always things we can do. And we want to know what your goals and wishes are so we can respect those. And so we were able to assess everybody when, when the COVID pandemic came out right off the bat with their goals and wishes related to the pandemic and not. Um, but definitely COVID, because of its very high mortality rate, changes people's minds. Um, and it's up to us to ask the question so that we can know it and then document it and then respect it. Okay, good. And this next question might be kind of similar, but can you tell us a bit about the content of the conversations you're having with those who are older, those who have a lot of <clears throat> chronic medical problems and contract COVID or, or even ha- or are potentially at risk of contracting it? Yeah, it's, you know, the, the question generally is not, um, do you want to be in a machine or not? That's, that's the wrong approach. The real question is, is, you know, what, do, what does a patient understand about their disease? Um, what they have now, what they may have, and, and what's the likelihood of the treatments working? Um, I think that's the very first step for, to, uh, to, for patients is to understand that part of it. The second thing is to understand what's important to them. You know, what brings them joy and value in life? Um, because if what brings you joy and value is not something that I can give you through a ventilator, maybe that's something that you may choose not to be on. And then you want to know their past experiences with dealing with people who've been very sick or very ill or even died. You know, what experiences do they have with that? Also knowing, you know, for any of us, I think, you know, really for any adult is knowing what kind of life is, is, is your goal, but also what would be unacceptable. And asking people really, you know, well, what would be unacceptable in life? And people will tell me things like, well, if I can't be with my family, 
and um, you know, I can't interact with them. I, I want you to keep me comfortable. And so really, again, asking a lot of those questions, probing questions and letting people tell you things um, is a really important thing for us to do. Okay, good. And Mike, this this pandemic is projected to last for quite some time. We don't know when it's going to end and when we're going to have a vaccine available or widespread antibody testing. And so there's going to be the possibility of spikes in cases or even surges down the road. Can you tell us how life may change for seniors in the long term as a result of this? Yeah, it's a, a really good point. I think, you know, this is a new reality that we all live with. In 1918, we had the influenza pandemic that really decimated 50 to 100 million people, depending upon the numbers you look at across the world. And um, it was a big change and a big shock to how everybody looked at life and dealt with illness um, after that for many years. Um, really, if we look at influenza in 2019, before the coronavirus pandemic started, um, it was part of our normal routine. We all understood that come wintertime, the flu comes. We all get our flu shots to try to prevent it. Um, and, and if it does, it causes us specific symptoms. Well, COVID or, or coronavirus is doing something very different to us um, in that it's, it's a disease where we don't have a treatment. Um, we don't have a cure. We don't have really any good management techniques. Um, it's mostly supportive care. Um, some things are coming out with it, but it's really a different discussion and a different concern that we have. We don't know what's going to happen in, in the winter of 2020. Um, are patients going to be getting influenza and, and COVID at the same time? Um, what will that be like? Again, it's all new territory for everybody across the world in thinking about how this is going to affect us and our families. Um, you know, our grandparents, you know, our, our aunts, our uncles, um, you know, the decisions we make, uh, or, or even young people, teenagers can make, can affect what happens with, you know, their grandparents or other people's grandparents, other people's aunts, uncles, you know, people who they love. And so really, this is a disease which as a society is really, you know, never been seen before. I think it's just, it's, it's amazing that we're, we're going through this now. I never imagine that I'd have to, to have these discussions or deal with something like this. Right. I don't think any of us had it on our radar to imagine anything like what we're seeing now. Actually, Bill Gates did. He gave a TED talk about it. <laughs> um, so what can be done to mitigate the effects of these life changes for seniors? Yeah, you know, I think that um, really making sure that we as a society think about um, not just ourselves and our actions, but that our actions affect others. Um, I think that, I, you know, anytime I go into a store and I see people wearing masks and, um, you know, washing their hands and using gel, I think those are people thinking about everybody else in society. You know, they're, they're really taking care, not just for themselves. I mean, are they trying to prevent their own um, infection? Probably, but they're also doing something that whether they know it or not, is helping to protect everybody else in society. So listening to what's happening, um, listening to what's coming out from the CDC, um, your local public health departments, your own physician. I think the other things are really to know that um, this disease is brought into places asymptomatically, um, that people are carriers and don't know it, and that we want to work as much as possible to, again, limit the spread of that um, by acknowledging it. And so when guidelines are made by people, such as limiting visitation, it's really to keep people safe. Um, those are some of the key things. I think once we get a vaccine, I'm sure that everybody will be on board really to take the vaccine because, again, it's something that protects not just you, but, but those around you as well. So, Mike, I, I want to actually open this up a little bit since you're the expert in geriatric medicine. 
And, and is there anything about geriatrics and COVID that I haven't asked you that you think our audience should know or any key messages that, that you want to get out there? Yeah, I mean, again, I think um, I sometimes hope that <clears throat> with the media specifically that they understand that when an outbreak happens in a nursing facility, um, it's not always the fault of the nursing facility that, you know, it, this is where large numbers of people live, whether it's a nursing home or assisted living, and everybody's doing their best to try to tr prevent the disease. And when it does come, everybody's going to do their best to try to treat it. Um, but these are our most vulnerable people, our, our most vulnerable grandpas and grandpas, um, our most vulnerable people who built this country. Um, I love the stories of the patients. One of the things as a geriatrician, you get to listen to stories. And I had a guy who um, I took care of recently, and um, he told me his story where he grew up um, on the East Coast, actually. He came to Vallejo to work in the, the, the Kaiser uh, shipbuilding mills, and they built ships that helped uh, save World War II. You know, he wasn't rich. He didn't save a lot of money. Um, his wife passed away about five years ago, and um, he moved into the nursing home because he didn't have a lot. Uh, this is somebody's grandpa. This is somebody's father. He was uh, a husband. He liked to go to dances. Um, you know, he had a life. He helped build things that, that really saved our country. And we have to value these people. Um, this is us in the future. This is our families. And, and for all of us to kind of remember that, that these are really valuable members of society. And, and we want to do what we can to, to show that to them. That's a great message to to honor those who came before us and and helped build this country and and saved us in, in world wars and and Vietnam and Korea and you know some really difficult times in our nation's history. Yeah. Um, so, Mike, I've been asking each of the guests on on the podcast if they want to give a shout out to any small businesses or restaurants in their community, with the idea that the business owners and, and the people who work for these businesses have been really hit hard during the, the pandemic and, and any bump in business that we potentially can give them uh, can be really helpful for them. So are there any small businesses or restaurants uh, in your community where you live that you'd like to give a uh, mention to? And we'll make sure that gets into the show notes and the social media posts related to this. In my community, I live in the community of Napa and we've had uh, just a, an incredible uh, challenge because the industry has essentially been shut down the, the, enter, the, the travel, um, food, everything. And um, some of the restaurants uh, I've seen go uh, under, one of my, my son used to work in a pizza place there. And um, due to the pandemic and, and the lack of business, they, they closed, partly closed their doors. Um, and so there are businesses in Napa that I'd like to support. Um, if, if any, first of all, if anybody wants to, to travel, once it's safe again, I think it's a beautiful place to come to. There's a couple of restaurants that we enjoy, uh, Zero Pizzeria and, uh, and uh, Norman Rose, uh, great places to come. And then uh, friends of ours, the Capios, who have a winery in Napa. Uh, you can look up his wine. Uh, it was a, a wine on the uh, uh, wine enthusiast, uh, one of the top Pinots. Um, Cap Sean Capio is Pinot. Uh, it, it was really highly rated, and, and I think he did a great job with it. So those are a couple of things that I'd like to, to see if anybody can support, maybe support a couple of those. That's great, Mike. Thanks. And, and those restaurants are slowly starting to open now. And hopefully at some point, tourism will pick back up and we'll all be able to get start to travel again. And, and so we're hopeful that they'll get a little bit of extra business as a, as a result of this and be able to keep their doors open for the longer term. Mike, on behalf of the podcast and uh, for our audience, I want to thank you for coming on and spending part of your evening with us to talk about geriatric medicine and 
nursing homes and nursing facilities and, and the realities out there and, and what's being done to try to keep everybody safe and moving forward. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that you've got a great podcast. Uh, hopefully this keeps getting growing and sharing because you're doing an awesome job. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. Uh, I wish you a good evening and, and stay safe and healthy. Okay. Oh, thanks. You too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.